Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Hello, this is Ken, your RV Navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot. And here we are having a disagreement about what we should talk about today. Because, as usual, <laughs> we have way too much stuff. And people are not going to spend says, two I hours don't... of their lives listening to us ramble on. <laughs> and she says, I don't think like she does, so I don't have things organized the way they should be. But we do have an agenda, and we will be talking about something for the next few minutes, and I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> well, we did arrive back. Yeah, uh, we're we talking to you from our studio, at-home studio. At the Big home of the RV Navigator, the home studio, with all of its high quality and high, high tech, tech equipment. <laughs> actually, we're sitting in front of our computer. And actually, we came home in the nick of time yes, because indeed. we turned on the TV today Whoa. and saw numerous of the spots that we just enjoyed visiting were covered with snow. Snow, and although we did see snow, but we it was didn't up see, high in the mountains. It yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't we anything like this because we wanted to go to the top of Mount Washington and. New Hampshire, and unfortunately, it was in snow the day we wanted to go. So we could only go halfway, and it was cold enough. So, on today's agenda, with the approval of the (laughs) co-pilot... will be some very interesting news stories, uh, a little re- summary of our trip, and an article or two, and then our major feature today is going to be talk- us talking about uh, digital photography and uh, how we do it. Many people have asked, and now we're ready to tell you. So stay tuned, dear listeners, and we will give you the very best. And- You're going to share all your secrets? Well, not about you. <laughs> no, about your digital photography. Uh, we want to remind you, however, that this is the RV Navigator podcast and that if you go to rvnavigator.com, you can see all of the previous episodes as well as the show notes for this show. Um, in case I don't get, uh, you don't catch one of the URLs that we happen to list, uh, we will be glad to share them with you at the website. And, of course, we love to hear from you, and we have heard from several listeners this month. You can contact us at navigator at rvnavigator.com or on our listener comment line, 815-230-0772. All of this information is, of course, on the RV Navigator website. I want to say that I kind of thought that the autumn colors in New England stuff was a lot of hype. And where Prior we, to going. Yeah, and where we live in the Midwest, we have wonderful fall colors. It's one of our best seasons of the year. And we have never been to New England in the fall, and so we wanted to go and see what it was all about. And I can definitely say that it is not a lot of hype. Uh, even on the days that were cold and rainy and foggy, the colors of the leaves on those trees are phosphorescently bright and beautiful. And if you have a chance, you should try to go. But the problem is when to go. Uh, we did a lot of research. We had websites that told us which areas of New England had fall colors in various stages of development. And even when we were in a place, uh, the colors varied so widely. Uh, of course, higher altitude, lower altitude makes a difference. But sometimes you just go around a corner and you were in a brown, crumbly leaf area and you opened onto a spectacular vista that was in perfect condition. So one of the things that really impresses us, I think, is that uh, if you're going to go for photography and viewing the fall colors, you got to spend the time. 
And and even as we did, we moved about once a week, and we mm-hmm. didn't go far. We spent uh, two months in New England. We were always kind of thinking, ooh, should we have come to this area last week, or should we have hung around in the other area a week more? Yes, that was uh, a definite you question. You were always second-guessing yourself. So I guess the other tactic would be to, to get a, a campground and stay there for a month and just wait. We did have the opportunity to talk to some folks that had taken a tour they were from our community, and they were on a week-long tour of New England and all of the scenic beauty. And frankly, they didn't get to see that much. And they were here there on the worst week weather-wise, too. Yes, on the worst week weather-wise. Uh, and so we were very glad we hadn't done just a week-long tour. Um, and the two months that we spent doing this, uh, which, of course, included the main coast also, was uh, actually very pleasant and uh, a, a nice pace. And we had plenty to do for almost the entire time, and except we're restless, when the weather was really bad. And we're restless souls. We like we to We are around. restless souls. We should mention that our camping experience was kind of uh, bookended by two very nice camping experiences that we should mention and uh, promote, and that's the COE campgrounds, the Corps of Engineer campgrounds. I think we mentioned that we stayed in the Outflow campground at um, Confluence, Pennsylvania. Thank you. And we ended up our trip by staying at another COE campground in Tioga, Pennsylvania, in Tioga, on the Pennsylvania. New York Pennsylvania border. Now, these campgrounds, uh, with the senior discount that we get, were $13 a night. For Only some of us are seniors. Uh, well, with the, with the senior pass that I have, $13 <laughs> a night, which we were very excited to use for the very first time. I think we mentioned that in the September uh, RV Navigator. But this $13 got us full hookup site. Spectacular Spectacular site. Spacious. Spacious. Uh, lovely fire ring. Um, these all nice had, tables. Um, Huge hangy things for trees, your Coleman lantern, so you could put it over the table. Paved roads, site with a pad, and at this last one, which was very nicely located, there were a lot of sites with uh, full hookups, which was very impressive. Okay, and and oh, we also want to mention fifty and thirty amp, mm-hmm. so that for thirteen bucks you could hardly afford not to to stay at these places. And they were a good deal at twice the price. They were a good deal at twice the price, which is the usual price that. Uh, People under the non-geezers have to pay. Non-geezers have to pay. With lots of recreational facilities. You know, they're on a lake or some sort of recreational facility, so they have a reason for being there. And the, the Corps of Engineers has just done a terrific job with these these campgrounds. But we, we, we have to say both of the ones we stayed at were in Pennsylvania, and we can't extrapolate from our experiences there to everywhere else. But if you zip over to our website at thervnavigator.com, I put a link to COE campgrounds website and you can do a search to find out if there is one close by certainly it's worth it um, check it out it's got all the best of camping that uh, that you would expect and then at the other end of the scale well not exactly the other end of the well, scale well you know when you are RVing and you just want a quick overnight stop it's really tempting to stop at a rest area or an oasis and inevitably these places are marked with large glaring signs no way Jose can we have anybody staying here overnight so we don't even think about it anymore but we noticed on our way out to New England as we drove the Ohio Turnpike <laughs> that some of the oases did indeed seem to have little campgrounds was this before or after I took off the mirror? <laughs> well, around the same time. 
uh, that some of these uh, oases had little camping areas. Um, Actual camping areas. So we, we went on the web and, and did a little research, and lo and behold, of the seven oases on the Ohio Turnpike, every other one has a camping area. And by that, we mean that it's a place where you can plug in your vehicle. The one we stayed at even had 50 amps mm-hmm. and has a place to uh, dump your sewer and a place to take on fresh water. And, of course, if you don't feel like cooking, you can always stop into the restaurant wow. and have delicious, greasy, fattening food that is the feature of fast food. Of so three turnpikes. of the service plazas on the Ohio Turnpike have these uh, RV facilities. And oh, now, and I didn't say that it only only cost $15, and it was a honor system. You've put in a little thing and got a little sticker to the, put in your window. The Corps of Engineers cost 13 and this costs 15 and this only has electric. And, and anyway, it's a parking lot situation, and they have uh, long, striped parking spaces that you can, in our case, uh, back into. And they're pretty close together. If you have a lot of vehicles with a lot of slides, it could get a little chummy. Yeah, Maybe in the summer there's a lot of people using these, but certainly the night we were there, uh, there were three of us, and we didn't unhook. We just took up a couple sites, and it all worked out fine. These facilities are open for occupancy between 4 p.m. and 10 a.m. the following day. And they may be occupied for one night and are available on a first-come, first-served basis, according to the website. So if you are traveling through Ohio and uh, it's just a quick trip, that's the way to go, I think. Uh, and do they're we, both eastbound and westbound, so there are actually six of them. Do we know if they are open in the winter? Um, because one of the reasons we stopped there is that many campgrounds in that area were already closed. They're open all year round. Um, they may not have water. Have the water but, yeah. but the water is not part of the camping experience. You right. have to go separately, so probably you can fill up with water. But it just each site just has its own electric hookup. Sewer and water you have to dump. So there's one in the eastern end of the state at milepost 76.9, in the middle at 139, and at the eastern end at mile 197. And once again, we are going to be putting the website for this up, and you can take a look at it for yourself in case our explanation is not clear enough. One of the reasons why we were on the Ohio Turnpike is because we were on our way home. And the reason why we were on our way home is is because it gets very cold in New England. And, frankly, the leaves had left the trees. Um, she mentioned at the beginning that, we, that they had uh, snow for recently, which, of course, is very unusual. But uh, we kind of intended to stay until the color had disappeared, um, and I think we did. But... Uh, we used a lot of propane, and we camped in some places that were pretty cold um, during these past couple of weeks uh, since Columbus Day. We were surprised at how popular Columbus Day was as a camping holiday. It's a big holiday in New England. And, and the other thing we saw is that a lot of the other touristy things that you might like to do um, either close altogether or have abbreviated hours or are only open on the weekend. So the show was kind of winding down. Yeah, we so left. we went to the Adirondacks, uh, part of the Berkshires, the White Mountains, and all of those uh, resort facilities pretty much closed down after Columbus Day. And although you could drive around and see fall colors, um, that was uh, kind of the end of the season for most people. And we were surprised at the number of campgrounds that did close down. And, frankly, for good reason. As we mentioned, it got cold. <laughs> and now it's snowing, so... So that was uh, and I wanna, kind of a shocker to us because put, the colors are still okay uh, in other parts of this of the Midwest anyway. 
I want to put in a special woohoo for New Hampshire, uh, maybe because we spend a lot of time there. But for a tiny little state, it had a lovely but tiny little piece of seashore. And then the Lake District around Lake Winnipesaukee is oh, yes. very picturesque. And then a bit farther north of that is the White Mountain area in Franconia Notch. And then there's farther north of that where we didn't even go. Um, but it kept us plenty busy and was very... Into the outback, what they call it? No, that's the Northeast Kingdom. That's in The Vermont. Northeast that's Kingdom. That's in Vermont. I'm I'm woohooing New Hampshire because I, I thought for a little state it had a lot to offer. And one of the other things we did, uh, she mentioned Lake Winnipesaukee, is that we stayed at an elder hostel that was on the shores of Lake Winnipesaukee. And as we mentioned before, elder hostels are for those 55 and older, and they're learning adventure experiences. We stayed at the Geneva Point Conference Center. I think they're for people 50. Remember okay. that one young woman there was 50. Okay, 50 and older. Uh, but not uh, 50 and over, meaning that you're going to be geriatric or otherwise infirmed because most of them are active type of uh, adventures. And the one that we did was uh, focused on digital photography. And although I don't particularly need uh, lessons in digital photography, I was very interested in going to... Um, high-quality, scenic places uh, with somebody from the local area. And there were numerous field trips on this uh, elder hostel that took us to some fabulous viewing experiences for the fall colors. And the lodge where we stayed, we walked out the door and we were right on the lake and there were little tiny little islands uh, a few hundred feet from shore. Very picturesque. So once again, we want to kind of give a, a little... Free advertising for elder hostels. A woo to elder hostels. to elder hostels. Uh, they have a huge catalog with all types of learning experiences, both uh, nationally week- and internationally. Yeah, that's right. The week before, uh, at our particular uh, spot there at Geneva Point, they had the Hookers Convention for rug hooking. Oh, oh, damn. Rug hooking convention. Uh, no, it wasn't a convention. It was a class in in doing hooking. And there were 30 or 40 hookers there who were doing hooking. We might also say that elder hostels have um, some places where they offer camping facilities rather than staying in a lodge or a hotel. So you might want to look for those as well if you don't like to leave your RV, which we we really don't. This facility had a place so that we could park our RV for the week. Um, It was the only time that we spent a night outside the RV, and frankly, we probably would have been happier to stay in it. Elder hostels are known for being all-inclusive. Three meals a day, all your tours, transportation, put away your wallet, nothing else to buy. And you're pretty much busy from morning till night. And they have lots of activities for you. Um, And a a decent small group. Uh, We were a group of about 20 so that a couple of vans could take us around and and uh, see the the things that uh, they had planned for us. And certainly we went to some very spectacular places at just the right moment. It started on October 12th, so that it was just after Columbus Day. So uh, it was was a a worthwhile experience. our seventh elder hostel, and as I think back over the ones we've done, they've been uneven in terms of the quality of the instruction but they are always wonderful in terms of the quality of your fellow participants. Um, These are always people like you who love to learn and and do new things, and it's great fun to share meals with these people and compare notes and get ideas on good things to do in the area or in the rest of your life. So uh, that's always a real benefit in going to an elder hostel. So that's elderhostel.org on the web if you'd like to take a look at uh, what they're doing. And no matter what your interest, they have uh, an elder hostel which will focus on that interest. So uh, that's it's hard to find 
uh, reasonably priced tours that are focused on a specific topic. So this is the place to go. Uh, next big topic. Oh, a really exciting one. Ho-hum. <laughs> Getting oil changes. We went to uh, Speedco, which we mentioned uh, a while ago as a new opportunity for oil changes. And it was our first experience there. Were and the reason why we went there is because it was um, inexpensive. The last time we got an oil change in the diesel pusher was uh, about $350. Yeah. And Speedco promises to do it for... About half the price. And you were satisfied by all the inspecting, the filters, and all the things that they did? Well, one of my problems is, is that I don't know much about diesel diesels, uh, big diesels like this. And so I had to kind of, I have to kind of rely on the expertise of the people involved. Um, the speed car is interesting because it's kind of like a Jiffy Lube for trucks. trucks. They're open from uh, 7 a.m. until 11 p.m. Imagine that. Most days. And the trucks come up uh, just like at a Jiffy Lube, and they no line up. No appointments. No appointments, and they line up on the side, and they're taken uh, in turn of the way they arrive. And so we pulled up to the Speedco, which was just off the expressway, and we sat there, and we were about the third person, third large vehicle in line. And the line looks much longer than it is because uh, the vehicles. All the are vehicles large. are so long. Yeah, everybody's towing their trailer. They were very helpful, and. Um, very willing to do our oil change. And they, the reason why we stopped there is because at a couple of uh, the RV shows, they've had booths and they've been promoting their services for RVs. Although, didn't you have the feeling the guy who worked on ours had never worked on an RV before? I got the feeling that this particular branch of the Speedco had never done. Uh-huh. Well, it's well, interesting because the first thing they ask you we, is... that we made it home. The first... Yeah, not quite. <laughs> uh, the first thing that happens is, is that they ask you what kind of an engine you have. And and I would have said a really big one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew it was a Cummins. I didn't know much more about it than that, and they want much more detail. And the truckers, of course, spout off exactly the, all the specific details that they need because they come to these places about every couple months. After that was settled, then they didn't really know how much oil to put in, for instance. And they, But they did have all the filters. Because the diesel pusher needs oil change only 20,000 miles, um, the the process is very much different than it is uh, in changing the oil in a car. Not only does it take 27 quarts, but uh, we put in three filters and they did a bunch of other things that I didn't understand. From um, a nincompoop's point of view, I really like having a diesel rather than a gas engine because I can think of many times when we traveled in the past where we'd stop every three or 4,000 miles for an oil change. And especially when you are still working and traveling in more of a hurry than we are now, I really resented sitting there in that line waiting for that oil change to happen. But when you only have to do it once a year and you can sit in your motorhome and read or make lunch and eat it while they're working on your coach, that's the height of luxury. Right. Uh, so we're pretty happy with Speedco. Um, the total cost, I uh, had a couple of extra things done. The total cost was uh, about $200 uh, with the base price starting at about 160 for our mid-size engine. They had low engine, mid engine and high engine um, depending on I guess the size and the capacities. They do lubricate the chassis and things. Uh, unlike what I was told, we did have to unhook our car and we had to go into the bay backwards because most trucks have their engine in the front and of course we have our engine in the back so we had to pull over the bay 
from the other side. And and if we hadn't taken the car off, it would have fallen into the bay because it's so widely <laughs> the spaced. The track is so wide. <laughs> So that was a good idea. So once a year, we can spend, uh, it took us about two and a half, three hours uh, total time. And frankly, the oil change and stuff takes a fair amount of time. It takes a while to empty out all that oil, and it takes to put in these three filters and to kibitz with the other drivers. All that takes time. And uh, they spend at least 45 minutes on our vehicle alone. The day before we were there, they seemed to be quite impressed with themselves because they did 27 trucks in one day, which... In car terms, it's not that many, I don't think, because I think you could do a car in about 10 minutes, 10 or 15. Because you whip off the oil filter, dump out the oil, put in the new oil, and that's it. But this one, there's a, a little bit more to be done, like adding additives into the radiator and putting a radiator filter on it. Boring. Well, I'm sorry, but some people might be interested in this. And, of course, we didn't really need an oil change, Mileage, so we're doing it based on time because we don't put 20,000 miles. It had a little under 10, as a matter of fact, so we don't drive that much. In fact, with this trip, we very purposefully didn't drive around a lot because when we left home, the price of gas and diesel was still unbelievably high, and we were gratified at how much it came down Indeed. while we were in New England. So we started out at 55 cents a mile, and we on the way home, it was only 40 Five cents a mile. Ka-ching, ka-ching. So the price of fuel has gone down dramatically for us. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm sure that you've kept track of it also. And with a buck reduction in the cost of fuel per gallon, that uh, really helps us out dramatically. We were just kind of at the last fill-up, which we paid um, about three thirty uh, a gallon, which was down from four ten or something that uh, which was the most we paid, and with twelve hundred miles between Phillips, we can take advantage of the low prices, but you still have to have the low prices around in order to take advantage of them anywhere. Email updates i 've had a flurry of mail about the garmin handheld <laughs> that I mentioned in the last episode, but a little surprised because uh, several people wanted to use it as their primary GPS in the car. When I mentioned that it had navigation and things, they said, well, why don't I just get this for both? Use it for everything. Use it for everything. And my basic reaction to that is you probably won't be very happy doing that. Um, it does have navigation, but it only beeps, so it doesn't talk to you. The screen is much smaller. It's harder to use in the car, although they do have a car mount for it that will keep it charged and keep it on in the car. But as the navigator, when I hold it in my hand during the day, it's very hard to see. It's there's, it's not bright enough compared to the light coming yes. in from outside. And the reason why it isn't as bright is because it's kind of weatherized, so it has a screen which is more water-resistant and still will respond to touch. And its touch screen is not quite as sensitive as the one in the car. Uh, if I was doing this and I could only have one GPS, I would buy one of the Nuvi models. Um, I recommended to somebody the Nuvi 262. W, which was about half the price of the handheld, and because it's battery operated, you could take it out of the car and walk around with it. So if you're doing geocaching and, and stuff, it uh, it will work for that. Now, what's very cool about the handheld though is is that it has some very specialized features, like geocaching. You can go to to geocaching.com and you can automatically download the geocache information right into the GPS without having to print it out or otherwise look at it. And it will put in the cache description, and it will put the 
cache on the map, and then all you have to press is go, and it just takes you right there. It does have some specialized cool features, but uh, the Oregon 300, which I bought, uh, which does not come with maps other than a, a basic base map, uh, was about $500, and then the map that I bought for it was about $100. So you're talking about a few bucks when you buy the handheld one, as opposed to about 250 or 260 for the other emails that we had this month were from folks who were just starting off on their RV adventure. And we certainly uh, are finding more and more of that uh, based on our emails. People who write to us and have questions because they are just starting off RVing. They think of us as some sort of experts. But uh, we're just sharing with you our experiences, and we hope that uh, that doesn't make us really experts. Well, the only advantage we have <coughs> is when it comes to learning by doing. We've been doing this for over 30 years. Yeah, <coughs> but uh, this couple was a younger couple, and they are buying their RV and going to be boy, t- taking the leap of faith and, and going off and starting the RV adventure all by them, all, all for the first time. Uh, good luck to them and uh, to anybody else. We're happy to answer your emails. And uh, I do get quite a few emails uh, with questions, um, and I try to answer them all. So keep the emails coming, and we'll try to uh, share our experiences with you. But understand that we are not experts, and we merely share our experiences. So uh, take it with a grain of salt. In the RV world... Um, we do have some misgivings because, as you know, the sales of RVs is way down. But uh, hopefully with the price of gas coming down, uh, things will rebound a bit. But there is another side to the story. Well, not only do you have to pay for the gas to put into your RV, but you have to pay for the RV in the first place. And I have here an article about RV sales hinging on credit. The recent fall of gas prices by more than a dollar a gallon certainly won't hurt the RV industry, officials say. But a far bigger boost will come when the seemingly frozen credit world thaws. We've been saying all year that the real issue is not fuel prices, says Kevin Broom, Director of Media Relations for the Recreational Vehicle Industry Association. It's credit, and we believe that that continues to be the case. It may help some and may offer some hope, but fuel fuel prices are not the driving factor in consumers buying an RV. Anymore, anyway. It really is credit, where people can get loans for what they are buying. Additionally, declining home values and overall consumer confidence also greatly affected sales. The latest figures for August, published by the RVIA, have overall RV shipments down 44% for the month of August, compared with that time a year ago. Boy, that's a lot. Motorhome vehicle shipments are down (laughs) 65.3% during that time period. Towables, such as fifth wheels, travel trailers, folding camping trailers, and truck campers are down 40.4%. All segments of the industry need the credit crunch solved. The sooner the better, agrees Johnson. The cost and availability of credit today that is affecting the sale of most big-ticket items, including RVs, he said. Between 60 and 70% of all RV sales are financed. Readily available credit for qualified buyers is critical to sustained sale levels. Lowering of oil prices might also have greater impact if they stabilize at that low rate. If some sort of stability can come to the oil market, that will be a big plus for us, Johnson said. It should be a big help as we go forward in selling season, assuming some sort of equilibrium comes to the rest of the economy. Selling season in the RV world kicks off in January and hits full stride from February through early summer. Yes, the recent drop in gas prices have helped, but this 
But come this winter, what the RV industry really needs is people to be able to get loans. The sooner we can get this going, the better, Broom said. Get the credit market unfrozen, the better it is for the RV industry. And I think we've seen from our local news in the in this area that, as well as when we were in New England, is is that car new car dealers are really hitting a crunch because they can't get money to loan for the purchase of new cars, and it seems that RVs are in a very similar situation. We were very surprised uh, a year ago, June, in June of uh, 2007, when we bought our motorhome, the ease with which we got a loan was staggering <laughs> to me. I mean, we were actually able to shop around, and we did it all over the phone, and it was just incredibly easy to get a loan, and apparently that sort of situation has just plain dried up. And although we pay off our loan uh, religiously and on time, uh, apparently many folks have not been able to do that as a result of uh, the declining economy. With the drop in gas prices and, and diesel, it will be very interesting to see if the sales pick up or if the credit crunch is really going to, uh, to hurt the RV industry for quite a few more years. And that could really happen. But in that light, we have uh, been researching and looking for New RVs that you might want to consider if you're not interested in a full-size motorhome, well, or if you can't afford it, you might want to consider a 50-mile-per-gallon RV. Can you believe 50 miles a gallon? This one is called the... Roma Home. Roma Home. Today's fuel prices are forcing you to stay at home? Then maybe you need a Roma Home, a compact European motorhome that gets 50 miles to the gallon. Several models are offered but all are rather are somewhat smaller, I'd say so, than American motorhomes. It's very interesting that they offer a couple of models. It is a what looks like a small truck camper. Truck camper, right, with the bed over the cab. Manufactured in Northern Ireland. Take a look at our website uh, for some pictures as well as uh, the link to this. I don't know what it costs, but it certainly would be interesting to to have in the United States. Um, as a basic RV. It costs less than it did three months ago because the U.S. dollar <laughs> is also getting okay, stronger. So they make a couple of models, uh, some even with extra seating in the back and a dedicated toilet compartment. And most of the amenities that you expect in, a, in an RV are available in this, in this uh, very small motorhome. Another vehicle that we found <laughs> is the is is from Dutchman, uh, uh, certainly an old line company. Its latest addition to its lineup is the Topo, T-O-P-O, as part of a new generation of recreational vehicles that combine the best features of outdoor adventure tents, yes, I said tents, with folding trailers. And we've seen these in Europe, but this is available in the United States. Lightweight and easy to use, the Topo weighs less than 500 pounds, so it can be pulled by virtually any and all compact cars, minivans, and crossover sport utility vehicles. Measuring 6 feet wide and 10 feet long when closed, the Dutchman's folding camp trailer expands to a 15-foot wide and 18-foot long camp that is easy to set up. Some of the interior highlights include two large beds with comfortable mattresses and one that converts into a sofa and a rear door that career door <laughs> that converts into a kitchenette with camp sink, countertop and storage that must fold out. Okay. 
Topo's exterior become, becomes complete with an aluminum roof rack that is compatible with the Thule roof rack systems for bikes and accessories and cargo boxes. And that's a Dutchman RV. Once again, the pictures are on our website. Two pictures. Uh, the, the small trailer is very small, and when it opens up, it's a huge tent uh, with a back door that has a kitchen. <laughs> what more could you ask for? What more could you ask for? And then if you want to step up... Uh, Another step, we can, uh, Monaco, of course, the makers of, of motorhomes, has started making the uh, Covina, which is a 24-foot um, and built on the Sprinter chassis. And we've seen many Sprinter chassis RVs, and that's certainly nothing unusual. And, of course, driven by a turbo diesel. Uh, but this one is much more of a larger Class C with dualies in the back, and uh, the cab, or the RV part of it is wider than the... And the chassis normally is. Uh, most of the sprinters that we've seen have been just uh, a sprinter van chassis that has been outfitted on the inside to be an RV. And this one is very nice looking as full body paint. Mm, nothing about slides, but uh, retail price of 104000 So that makes it uh, much more reasonable to, to buy um, in terms of uh, motorhomes. And it's 24 feet long, so it could be something that's quite reasonable. Well, if they're working toward fuel economy, they might leave the yeah. slide outs off. Yeah, well, that, that adds them, weight. That make it lighter, that's for sure. So, you might want to take a look at these uh, or look at them at your local RV show. Well, I did want to talk about Christmas presents, but I suppose that that can wait until until we come up with uh, <laughs> the next show in December. Although there are some very cool ones on the on the list, but we'll keep the the listeners hanging, and we will go on to. The last topic, um, our feature, which is now going to be two and a half minutes long. <laughs> well, that's about all I have to say about it anyway. <laughs> I've been a long-time photographer, and I never get to talk about photography. And When I photography. met Ken, he says to me, I have a dark room. Would you like to come down in the basement and see it? <laughs> so and I've been thus doing... began a beautiful relationship. So because we've been married almost 40 years, you can tell about how long ago that was. Um but we have switched to digital photography. I bought my first digital camera in 1994. We've been using exclusive digital photography now for the last few years. And going to the Elder Hostel where we learned about digital photography and uh, had a chance to talk to many people who are not quite at the same level that we are uh, was an interesting experience. And so we thought we'd share some of our experiences with you. Over the next few months, we'll talk about some of the issues dealing with digital photography. I'm just thinking about this, like, and to me, it's not the photography itself that has changed so much. Mm. It's what you can do with the photograph after you take it of course. on your computer. That, to me, is well, and the, storage the real revolution. And the instantness. But I think everybody understands that. But we actually carry four cameras. <laughs> actually, five. Four cameras. I have two. How many do you have? Well, I have two stills in a, digital, in a, in a video. We want to talk about video sometime, too. Actually, two videos now. So we carry six cameras and three computers. Um, and the reason why we each have our own laptop computer... Is because we don't share very well. <laughs> we have each have two digitals, and why is that? Well, um, sometimes... Well, let me even back up. I used to have a film um, SLR camera, which did a beautiful job, um, if I do say so myself. But it was very heavy. 
and Especially I found that it was interfering with my traveling joy. Um, I, w- I was getting back aches and sore shoulders, and I'd try to put it in my purse, and then it would get beat up because once something goes into my purse, it never comes back out again in the same condition. And so it made sense to me to downsize. So both of my digital cameras are somewhat smaller. But the one is about the size of a deck of cards, and that's the one that I take with me whenever I want to have a camera with me and don't want to bother with anything larger. It fits in a pocket. Um, It has a small zoom lens. It even does video. Um, It does um, panorama pictures that I can stitch together and is very light and handy, and I would never... When I'm in anywhere scenic, I never have... I am never without a camera, let's put it that way. And that's kind of the situation for me, too, because I do have the digital SLR, a Canon 40D, and uh, several lenses to go with it, which I carry around when I'm expecting to see great scenes that need to be photographed. But at all times, we both kind of carry around our small digital camera. And mine is especially cool because it is a Pentax Optio 20W, which means that it is waterproof and waterproof down to 10 feet. So my camera is not only uh, a small point-and-shoot camera that I can take pictures anytime, um, but it is also useful under the water or in any weather condition that you might be in, even snow. I'm trying to think of the last time I saw you in deeper than 10 feet of water. That's it. I don't go into, well, I'm in the water, but I don't go, go down that far because feet. of snorkeling. We've used a snorkeling. You can shoot movies Movies underwater, which is something very cool. And understand, uh, and you want to take a look at the picture on the website, that this camera has all of the appearance of a point-and-shoot. It is not an underwater-looking camera. It doesn't have uh, housing and it doesn't have waterproof not dials, and, but they are waterproof. So whatever, however they do that, it's magic. But the camera is actually very small and fits in your pocket very well. So we like to have a camera with us at all times. And then for high-quality shooting situations, we both shoot with uh, a more powerful camera, a more sophisticated camera that has many features. Most of which I don't take enough advantage of. But because we brought our, our instruction manuals along with us to the shoot here, to the Elder Hostel, we had a chance to read them and to learn more about what kind of features our camera has. And thanks to you, I've put my manual on my laptop, which makes a lot more sense because I travel with my computer all the time anyway. Otherwise, I was always debating whether I should bring it or whether it was worth the weight and the space in a suitcase, and now I always have it. Yep. And one of the things that we always do is we always set our camera for the highest quality settings so that we can downgrade the pictures at later time for putting on the web or for sending as an email attachment. But we always have the original high-quality pictures uh, at the beginning. And uh, because you could never increase the quality, you always, but it's easy to downgrade the quality. So we always shoot with the fewest number of pictures on our card. And that may seem strange, but because memory cards are so cheap these days, that you can easily shoot at the highest quality setting and uh, not put yourself out of... uh, out of business in terms of cards, in terms of memory cards, because they're so cheap. And, you know, memory cards are memory cards, and you can easily buy a 2-gigabyte card for your camera for less than $25, I would say. One thing we did at our Elder Hostel was to share a few pictures every night, and 
about half of our fellow photographers didn't have laptops with them, and so they had to rely on that little viewfinder that's on the digital camera Mm, to select their pictures. And a few of them were embarrassed because they put pictures up that were out of focus. Or otherwise damaged. That's not to say that everybody doesn't take out-of-focus pictures, but that just reinforced in my mind that that viewfinder gives you kind of a quick and dirty impression of how your picture was, but it's not a good way to really look at it and see whether you've gotten the picture that you wanted. And so that every night what we do is is that we take the time to download the pictures from our cameras into our laptops so that we can examine them and fix them and and get them ready for other things like web pages and the blog and And organizing and organizing and sending off to folks. And I can tell you we got some terrific pictures on this trip. If we do say so ourselves. Even if we do say so ourselves and I'm going to put up our Flickr site so that you can take a look at some of what we're talking about. Understand that uh, these days digital photography is every bit as good as film photography and I have a 24 by 36 inch printer that I print on and you can make huge prints, frankly much bigger prints than you used to be able to make uh, with digital and the quality stands up. So anybody who tells you that digital is not as good as film um, has not does not have enough practical experience with digital or doesn't have a good printer. I don't know which. And even if you're not quite sure what all the buttons and wheels on your camera do, uh, one thing that I had fun doing shooting uh, scenery is to just play around with them and right. try different settings and see what they look like and see what they do for you. Yes, and that's why going to an elder hostel or other learning experience is a good one because it gets you a chance to take some of the best pictures that you can and then to potentially manipulate them and see and to see what other people are doing too because that's another fascinating aspect of this. That was very fun. You know, we all went to a nice waterfall, let's say, and we all stood around for half an hour and took pictures of that waterfall and you couldn't believe how many different kinds of pictures and angles and approaches there were to the same waterfall. Uh, that's what makes photography an art, I would say. And, of course, they got you up at, at dawn so that you could go take pictures, which is something we ordinarily wouldn't do. <laughs> We're not doing it anytime soon. <laughs> but we did get some terrific pictures uh, at, at sunrise, so it was worth the experience at the time. So, dear listeners, uh, we do appreciate you listening to the RV Navigator and uh, and giving us some feedback and uh, keeping us motivated for making more shows. We certainly have enjoyed this this aspect uh, of uh, the RVing adventure, and it gives us reason to to do more RV our Navigator podcasts. So keep in touch, and we will be seeing you later. This is Ken, your RV Navigator. And Martha, the co-pilot, wishing you a fond farewell and hoping that we'll see you at a campground near us someday soon. 